Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Tobin Gilman, author of The McGlincy Killings in Campbell, California, an 1896 Unsolved Mystery, published by the History Press. Last week, Tobin described how James Dunham had killed nearly his entire family in a violent, bloody massacre, then took flight into the mountains of Central California to elude capture. Let's get back to the search party, bloodhounds, bounty hunters, and all. Tobin, welcome back to Crime Capsule. It's great to have you. Great to be back. So where we left off last week, a massive manhunt had been organized to catch James Dunham. The team takes off across the Santa Clara Valley. There's been a sighting at a nearby hotel, but Dunham is a step ahead of the hundreds of people who are searching for him and the very, very good boys, the bloodhounds as well. Where is Dunham at this point? So Dunham is in the uh, the lower part of the uh, Mount Hamilton uh, mountains, the Diablo range, if you will. And uh, one of the things that's really important for your listeners uh, to understand is that um, this this mountain range, these hills get very treacherous very fast. For those of us that, that live here, many, many folks who've lived here many years have never actually been up the road that goes up into those hills. And when you're uh, looking up from the valley floor, it, it appears to be these nice, smooth, round-topped hills. But when you actually start ascending up, up into those hills, what you realize it is it is very steep and rocky terrain. There's a lot of, uh, of foliage, thick brush, trees, manzanitas. And so he's at the lower, kind of the lower part of those hills uh, in the Smith Ranch area. But um, he does have the advantage of those hills uh, in terms of his ability to hide and be evaded. The disadvantage he had was that he was, he was not supplied. He wasn't prepared to make that flight. So um, his clothing was inadequate. Of course, his food supply was non-existent. Um, and the things that you would need to even attempt to go into those mountains and stay there for any length of time were, were lacking. Right. And we have to remember that he never expected to have to make this particular flight because he thought after killing his entire family, he could just saunter back onto the property, take ownership of it through his through his son, you know, the, the infant uh, as the legal trap. And he was never expecting to have to just pick up sticks and, and take off, was he? That, that's correct. So there are quite a few sightings along the way, and I thought we could just take a look at one or two of them. This, the first one, the most important one, is at this place called the Smith's Creek Hotel. And it's actually, it's actually a close call for Dunham, isn't it? And he kind of gets a like a lucky break due to the climate, the weather, the kind of um, the conditions that nobody can really control. You know, sort of nightfall, you know, that sort of thing. So, what what happened at Smith's Creek? He had found a cabin, and it actually belonged to uh, a hand on the, the Smith Ranch, and he had gone into that cabin and had gotten some supplies, some. Uh, prunes and some meats, I think, and then it um, encountered uh, two of these 
Smith Branch employees on the property. Um, and uh, one of the employees was suspicious, thought he recognized Dunham, thought that he might be um, the killer. And uh, the other one, I think, might have been a little less aware. But there was a dialogue between the two of them, and it ended with Dunham moving on and uh, continuing his, his escape without um, those gentlemen being able to alert law enforcement in sufficient time to apprehend him right then and there. But that could have ended, that could have ended his, escape, his escape right then and there, and it would have made my book a lot shorter <laughs> if it had uh, gone the way that uh, it might have. There is this interesting moment in that dialogue, too, where this employee who recognizes Dunham, he comes up with a, I think you call it something like a clever lie on the spot. And this clever lie is, you know, don't go up this path because the law enforcement is out trying to get cattle poachers or something like that. And he basically sort of steers Dunham away. And it's not true. I mean, there, were, there was no law enforcement up that particular trail or whatever, but he steers Dunham into a different direction down into the valley, doesn't he? That, that's correct. I had forgotten about that. But yes, he did have suspicions that this was Dunham. He wanted to actually steer Dunham onto the road uh, that leads uh, to and from Mount Hamilton, the Lick Obser- Observatory. And uh, so that was the, uh, the ploy that, that he attempted, but it didn't work. Let me ask you, I mean, we have to remember, as we're looking at this particular case, that this is still very much an analog era. How is traversal up and down this particular geography? I mean, it's mostly horseback. There are some new roads that you describe that are kind of being built at the time, but not really very many. So I'm kind of envisioning a combination of horseback and foot, and that's about all you get. What are the challenges for getting around in this part of the valley? Well, in that mountain range, there in fact is only one road. It it goes to the top of Mount Hamilton, which is where Lick Observatory uh, stands today. And that was built in the 1880s. And I will tell you, um, that road is treacherous today. I'm a motorcycle rider, and I, I ride big bikes. I have a, an Indian Roadmaster, which is a fully loaded touring bike. And uh, the last time I rode my motorcycle up the up that road, it was kind of terrifying because the road is so narrow, and there are large parts of that road with no guardrails, with just steep uh, cliffs. And it, I am always amazed at what it must have taken just to get the uh, observatory built, to get the telescope up that hill on, on horseback. It, it's, it's a very narrow road. So that was really the only um, traversable path by horseback or, or foot or anything else. Dunham had to stay off that road, which meant he had to kind of navigate the, the ravines and sides of these hills uh, to avoid law enforcement. Not an easy task. Yeah, and there's another factor here too, which I thought was really compelling in your account. There's a, a climate issue as well. You have sort of heat during the day. This is May, right? Um, late, late May, so it's going to be hot. Um, you have uh, fog at certain points in the evening, and so you're kind of constantly battling the elements if you're trying to escape in this very rugged uh, terrain. One, one question I had for you was, how easy is it to find 
tracks and trails, right, for the folks who are in the search party, um, absent mud, right? So you would think that if there had been some rain, then the ground would have been softer and it would have been easier to find those sort of hoof prints or footprints or boot prints, as it may be. But you do mention that it had been very dry up until that point, and the only moisture was sort of coming in through fog. So how how were they how were they able to kind of look for him and with that impediment in their way? Well, they didn't really have a lot of options. That was actually where the bloodhounds <laughs> were uh, were brought in to to try and help. Um, but you're you're right. I mean, there were no footprints uh, that they could go on. Um, now, what they did uh, what they did have one of the things, and maybe I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but um, at one point during the search, they heard a gunshot off in the distance, and uh, there was a question mark about where that gunshot originated and who fired that gun, and that's a, that's a question that lingers today, but shortly thereafter, they discovered Dunham's horse, and what that tells you is that the horse was of no value to Dunham since he couldn't be on the road. And the terrain was just too treacherous to, to navigate on horseback. Everybody was on, on foot, the, the killer as well as the, the chasers. You have more and more people joining the hunt, right? Um, you have more sort of interested parties from the community, more people who'd known the McGlinseys, more folks coming from outside of the county, volunteering their services and their their skills. I was taken by your account of Juan Edson, who was uh, both an, an attorney and a fairly well-known tracker, which seems to be kind of a unique skill set in this particular case, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, he was an interesting character. He was, uh, you know, a, again, very well known for his prosecutorial exploits within the city. Um, and he was somebody who was obviously motivated by the reward money. And he went to great lengths over many, many years to try and track down the killer, but ultimately to no avail. So Dunham heads south into, you write that he eventually sort of makes his way down towards Fresno County, south and east-ish, uh, through the through the valley. And they're believed all... to have made him made his way south. We Thank you. don't know with certainty. <laughs> yes. No, that's very important actually. I appreciate that because it's it is it is not conclusive. And one of the things that makes the inconclusiveness so interesting is because m most of the sightings that we get in this again, we're in this sort of the first few days, maybe the first week of his escape. That very kind of um, delicate time frame. Uh, many of the ranchers and the farmers in the area had already known him. Right, he had maybe worked for them for a little while. He'd done little short stints on their property as a ranch hand, and then moved on. And he's not a stranger. It's it, he's not this sort of anonymous face in the crowd and he's also very physically distinctive the photographs that we do have of him it's you kind of can't mistake him for anybody else can you yeah that's correct so as the search expands something i'd like to ask you about is the tension that the law enforcement authorities are starting to experience here regarding the sightings which are coming in more and more the false sightings which are coming in more and more and then 
every time you get a high-profile case like this, every single time, we, we hear on Crime Capsule, we spend a lot of time looking at the cranks and the looky-loos and the folks who just want to be a part of the action, even though they have no relationship to the case whatsoever. They're just rubberneckers and glory seekers, right? Uh, how did How did... Sheriff Linden and the authorities, how did they handle this? You know, it was probably very similar to what happens on America's Most Wanted or what happened when that series was on TV, right? Uh, you know, word gets out about somebody's on the loose, and the next thing you know, the uh, the tips just start flowing in, and law enforcement has to triage, you know, which ones are, are viable, which ones are not, so that they're not, you know, chasing down uh, fruitless things and and uh, focusing on on the best opportunities. I think that was probably the phenomenon that Sheriff Linden and his crew had to had to deal with. And uh, yeah, there were you know there were calls and Dunham sightings that came from all over California initially, and then as time went on, uh, the leads came from all over the country. Really? How 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 quickly did that? Uh, widening sphere of of tips. I mean, if you were to map sort of like where the tips were coming in based on day, how long did it take for the sightings and the false, you know, the false leads to reach the Atlantic coast? <laughs> yeah, instance? yeah, it's a great question. I, I I would say you know the first two weeks the uh, the sightings were all in the the vicinity of of the the East Foothills of Santa Clara County and adjoining counties. And uh, there was one interesting story. Uh, uh, a, a kid who lived not too far away, uh, a little bit further south, um, had been riding his bike over a very heavily used road today called Pacheco Pass. It's a it's a road that kind of connects Silicon Valley to the Central Valley. And back in those days, it was probably just a, a dirt road. But he had been riding his bike over that that pass and had found what he thought was uh, remnants of a body. And so there were a lot of those things, but by, you know, the first month, well, within the first month, I would say the tips started coming in from, uh, states east of California. And then for decades later, uh, tips came in from, you know, as nearby as Nevada and Arizona and as far away as Massachusetts and New York and Ohio. In June, 1896, remember the crime you had written took place at the very end of May, and the majority of this manhunt takes place in early June into the kind of the middle of June. But you write that by the end of that month, the trail really had gone cold. What were the theories? The theories at that time probably are still the theories that exist today. There, there's one theory that um, he made it over the mountain range, the Diablo mountain range into the central Valley, perhaps got on a train and disappeared somewhere in the country, never to be seen again. That's one theory. There's another theory that suggests that he quickly came out of the foothills and headed to the coast and may have gone all the way down into Mexico, worked his way down the coast and, disappeared into Mexico. In, in latter years, there, were, there was a report of somebody believing they had an encounter with, with Dunham. Another theory holds that he made it to the coast and perhaps 
uh, more in a northerly direction toward the San Francisco Bay and caught a freighter, a shipping freighter, maybe stowed away on it and sailed away to some faraway land. And then the final theory is that he never made it out of those foothills, that he died right there in the hills. It is interesting to me, Tobin, that as the leads dry up, as the tips get less and less reliable, as the more fanciful accounts begin to supplant any real evidence that, that you might find. There was evidence. I mean, I thought it was fascinating that you describe he had stolen some gunny sacks to wrap around his feet to protect his feet as he was walking, and that was fairly conclusively established. But but my heart really went out to you as a researcher because as the leads for the investigators dry up, uh, the leads for the researchers working on the case a century later also dry up. And, you know, you sort of keep hunting, you keep searching, you keep looking for more material and data and evidence. And you were in the exact same position as Sheriff Linden and his team and those those bloodhounds. I just, my heart went out to you as I was reading this book. It's like, what what is Tobin going to have to bring to us next? Oh, no, the barrel is running dry. <laughs> yeah, and, and there were obviously uh, no witnesses, uh, no acquaintances that, that I could speak to. They're all, of course, long gone. At least uh, uh, Lin, Sheriff Linden and, and his crew had had that going for them. One of the more uh, humorous things that happened during the search, and I forgot exactly how how far into the search it happened, but it was it was kind of I, I got a kick out of it. Um, there was a story that appeared in the local paper, the San Jose Mercury News, which is still the, the main paper here in Silicon Valley. And it was an article about uh, three boys that were truant from school. And they had taken time off from school uh, to go search for, for James Dunham. And one of the kids, you know, snagged his dad's rifle. Another kid you know, got some food and supplies that they were going to take up into the hills. But what I got, what I got a kick out of was uh, two things. One that, you know, just three boys thinking that they could go and go and find this guy because when I was 10, 12, 13 years old, I could easily see myself trying to pull that off. And the second, oh, thing, yeah. <laughs> the second thing I think that was funny about it is just the fact that that was that a truancy was was printed in the newspaper because I will tell you, in, in 2022, uh, it takes a much more significant crime to get coverage of the San Jose Mercury. Yeah, I imagine so. No, of course, the the, the premise of these you know these young whippersnappers, these rapscallions, you know, taking it on themselves is it sounds like the the you know the the pitch for this great film, you know, like this great movie that somebody should write and direct and what if they found him, right? I mean then once you catch him then what do you do with him, right? Well, and one of, one of the other things I think is probably one of the more humorous aspects of this search and and this happened some years afterwards. There were, there were James Dunham sightings all over the country. And there was this one poor fellow who lived in Texas. His name was Hatfield, William Hatfield, I believe, if memory serves me right. He was uh, apprehended in, in somewhere in Texas for some petty crime, and someone was sure that he was James Dunham. And he was held in te- Texas, and Sheriff Linden and his deputy went, went to Texas to examine this guy. 
And the deputy, actually, his name was Buffington, and Buffington had known Dunham. So Buffington accompanied Sheriff Linden to Texas. They talked to him, and Buffington saw enough to think that he probably was James Dunham. The Texas authorities were not willing to just extradite him to California. They wanted the reward money as the condition for the extradition, which in and of itself is kind of tells you a little bit about inter inter law agency cooperation back in those days. But yeah, the, or the la- the lack thereof, or the kind of. Um you know, there are a lot of stories about folks uh, vying for the the big prize, you know, so to speak. I hear you. Exactly. Anyway, they, they eventually did get him to San Jose. And uh, an entire parade of people came to the San Jose jail to, uh, to examine uh, this guy. And half of them swore, yep, that's him. I knew him well. That's that's your guy. The other half said, you know, I knew Dunham well. That is not the guy. And this, this poor fellow uh, sat in a jail cell for over a month, kind of took it all in stride. And as it ultimately would, uh, would turn out, um, it became pretty conclusive that he was not the killer. Now, the funny <laughs> thing about it was even, even the district attorney uh, at the time made that conclusion. And there was a hearing before the judge, profuse apologies to this poor Hatfield character. He was released. And by this time, he had gone from being the most hated man in Santa Clara County to uh, a beloved celebrity. And he was released from jail. Uh, he was greeted with lots of congratulations by passerbys. People gave him cigars. His meals were paid for by the local restaurants. And he had uh, he was an aspiring vaudeville performer. And at the request of the judge, one of the local vaudeville houses actually employed him. So it worked out well for that for that guy. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. You know, there are, some states have laws about compensation for wrongful conviction or wrongful detention, you know, like certain amount of dollars per day that you were held, you know, illegally or, or you know, um, uh, were, were proven to be innocent. But you know, getting a job like that to do what you've always wanted to do, that's that's about as good as a sack of cash, isn't it? You no, know, you can't beat it. And there's one more uh, dimension to this that I want to mention before we move on, because I think it's it's somewhat relevant to this story. And it's something I didn't even realize until 
after the book came out. But this young deputy, uh, his name was Howard Buffington. At this time, he was, you know, a 20-something-year-old young person in, in the early stage of his law enforcement career. In the 1930s, he became a central figure in two other famous Santa Clara County cases. Uh, the most famous was um, a lynching that took place in downtown San Jose at St. James Park. It's a long story. I don't want to go off into too much of a tangent, but um, uh, a beloved heir to a department store uh, enterprise was murdered, a young a young young man in his early 20s. And uh, the, the murderers, there were two guys that were apprehended and accused of the murder. They were held at the, the county jail, and there was so much outrage in the city. There was a storming of the jail. They, they broke down the jail door and went into the jail, and they dragged these two guys out, and they lynched them in St. James Park, which at that time was right across the street from the jail. And the jailer uh, overseeing the jail at that time uh, was named Howard Buffington. And Buffington was furious that uh, this Hatfield guy was released, because uh, the guy from Texas, because Buffington had been sure that he was, in fact, Dunham. Um, at the time uh, this lynching took place, Buffington is believed to have kind of winked and nodded and, and allowed this mob to storm the jail. And then he was later uh, the central figure in a murder that took place at Stanford University, where a, a Stanford employee and his wife who lived on the campus, uh, he was accused of murdering his, his wife in their home on the Stanford campus. Buffington aggressively prosecuted that case and once again was a, a central figure. So throughout his career, he was very much a, uh, a prosecutorial-oriented sheriff, sheriff's deputy and ultimately sheriff. That's some remarkable connections over the course of that career. I mean, especially if you get the sort of Dunham lookalike who, if he gives the you know, the knowing wink. Uh, it just makes you wonder. It does It does make you wonder. At this point, though, the further out you have gotten from the McGlincy murders, the crazier the tips have become. You know, Dunham has gone and joined the Mexican Revolution. There's this mysterious message in a bottle that purports to have something from, from him, you know, that, that surfaces. But frankly, he's in the wind. He's gone. That's it. I think it tells you, you know, two things. One is it tells you that uh, the crime that we've been talking about in this podcast and the, the first segment of it is as heinous as it was and as heinous as it still is to us today. We know that, you know, these things, unfortunately, are just all too commonplace. But um, the fact that interest in this crime and the shock uh, lasted 10, 20, 30, 40 years after the fact tells you how different things things have become in in more more recent years, more recent decades. The other thing it tells you is how the money remained a motivator for so many years afterwards. We do not believe in uh, closure here. <laughs> there is no such thing as closure for cases like this. Um, there are aftermaths, right? And there are epilogues, plural, that have to be written. And I, I do need to ask you about the, the different epilogues that took place for the folks who were involved in this. Um, first, what happened to 
the rest of Dunham's own family, not the family that he killed, but the sort of the the extended family that had um, that had more or less seen the back of him before this ever happened. Right. So so Dunham had, um, uh, you know, his mother and father were actually, I, I believe, still alive at the time of the killings, but they might might have passed. I, I don't remember that. But one thing I, I think that's relevant about his mother that I don't think I've mentioned is that when Dunham was growing up, he may have inherited some of his violent tendencies from her. She was an Irish woman. Her name was Kate Dunham. And she was known around town as a, as a successful businesswoman, but also a, a woman with a violent temper. She was known as, as Kate the Terror. And there was actually an incident from Dunham's childhood that uh, might have been predictive of what he did the night of the killing. When he was a young boy, he had asked his mother for some money to, to go into town and buy some candy. And she told him no. And he quietly accepted her no and went out in the backyard and broke the necks of the chickens she had in the backyard. Just that was his little temper tantrum. I mentioned that because later in his life, when he was a ranch hand, uh, he was working on a ranch somewhere up in Northern California before the killings took place. And he got in a dispute with another ranch hand and tried to snap that guy's neck. So a little bit of a divergence there. But in the aftermath of this, the surviving members of his family were his, his younger brother, Charles, and his younger sister, I believe her name was Addie. And it was it was really sad. Charles was kind of a quirky guy uh, in his own right, but by all accounts, uh, somebody that lived a normal a normal life. But he and the younger sister were both greatly shamed. The Dunham name was was attached to them, and you can imagine how that would be in a small town to sort of have to carry that cloud over your head. So they actually petitioned successfully to have their last name changed. They adopted the name of a of a of a relative. The younger brother Charles, I think, what got on with his life, but it was never the same for the younger sister. Um, her name was, gosh, I, yeah, I would have to go back and double check it. But she never really recovered from the shame and the shock. She was probably a, a frail person emotionally to begin with, but uh, she ultimately sank into a very deep depression. And, and died at a very early age. The uh, death certificate said consumption, but the general consensus was she died of a broken heart. And that was a, she's often known as the seventh victim of that crime. What about Percy, the baby? What happened to him? So Percy was um, adopted by relatives of, of uh, the Wells family. They raised him and... Not much was known about him. So one of the great mysteries uh, that, that still remains to this day was whether or not Percy was ever told of who his biological father was and the heinous crime that, that he committed. And we, we'll never know for certainty, but there's a bit of a clue that uh, can be found in his Social Security application in 1956 in Florida. He listed his parents, and he listed his father as the gentleman, uh, the relative that raised him, but he listed his mother as Hattie Wells, which was, uh, you know, Hattie Dunham's maiden name. So it kind of suggests to me that he, 
knew who his biological mother was, and he was proud of that, and he wanted her listed as his mother, uh, but not under the name of his biological father. And so he listed his mother by her maiden name, Hattie Wells, and his father by the name of the uh, the relative that that raised him. But that doesn't necessarily prove that he knew who his biological father was. He may he may have been told that uh, you know that Hattie was pregnant out of wedlock and raised. By, by someone else, so we'll never really know with certainty. But but I suspect he knew. That's a that's a really intriguing little thread to pull there, and that's some pretty good sleuthing for you to have found that. That's really interesting. What is the legacy of this case in modern day Campbell, California? So I'll tell you kind of a, an interesting story. Right after the book went to press, but had not been published, I was invited to give a, a talk at the uh, Campbell Historical Museum. And uh, it was a really it's a wonderful museum. And they do these things, uh, uh, Friday night, history night. And you, you, you go early evening and you, you can go listen to a lecture about history. And then you can go into downtown Campbell, which is a vibrant, fun little downtown that's kind of an enclave, an enclave in the middle of San Jose. And they have great restaurants and bars. And so it's a popular thing they do in the summertime. And I, I gave my talk. Uh, and then at the end, I concluded by um, letting the audience know that to this day, um, every May 26th, around midnight, neighbors in the McGlincy area report to the Campbell police the sound of gunfire. And I just paused, and I let that hang in the <laughs> air. And I did the whole thing up, but I just wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, 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 so I'm, I'm, I'm hearing the oohs and the ahs, and all of a sudden, this elderly gentleman in his his late seventies goes, "Oh, those are just kids lighting firecrackers." Well, <laughs> it turned out uh, uh, this this gentleman's name is Howard Cating. He's a longtime Campbell resident. He moved to Campbell uh, in 1938 as an eight or nine year old kid, and he actually lived and still lives uh, unless he's passed away in the last couple of years uh, right in that vicinity. And he actually, as a boy had um, had the opportunity to um, get friends that lived in the house where the killing took place. And as a kid, they would have these sleepovers at the house and the kids would dare each other to spend the night alone in the bedroom where uh, Hattie and Minnie were killed. Yeah, and, not uh, a chance. Not the, the, a chance. No, thank you. Slam the door shut. I'm out of there. No, sir. <laughs> wow. Oh, exactly. Well, you know, this gentleman, Mr. Cady, was gracious enough to invite me over uh, to to his home, and he walked me over to where the house had once stood, and he showed me where everything had once been, where the house had been, where the barn had been the road. And, and it really helped me, you know, visualize this so much better. The other thing that was interesting is that, that Howard Cading himself is something of a, of a legend in this area. He's a, he, he's a racer or was a racer. He, he raced a certain category of race car and was well known at the racetracks throughout California for many years and, and actually uh, won a claim over a period of four or five decades. And so uh, learning a little bit about that legend was a, a, a little benefit I accrued from this exercise that uh, I'm grateful for. Last question I have for you, Tobin. You've studied this case more than 
anybody. What do you think happened to James Dunham? I think he died in the hills. I think that he he uh, the terrain is so treacherous. I just uh, and, and again having ridden motorcycles up that road and, and taken it many many times. Uh, I, I just don't believe anybody could have gotten out of there without taking the road itself, and that was close to him. Uh, there are a couple of other data points that lead me to believe that. One is that I mentioned earlier in our podcast that a shot had been heard and that later his horse was found. Uh, I believe that gunshot was Dunham's gun gun itself and that he shot himself somewhere in a ravine. And there have been many, many searches in the years that followed that killing, That searches that went on in the early 1900s, the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, they never recovered the body, but that is not at all surprising given the nature of that terrain. And then there's there's one piece of evidence that if I could only get my hands on it, uh, might uh, put this thing to rest once and for all. About uh, shortly after the book came out, uh, the, the local newspapers did some reviews on it, and I was contacted by this guy that he's about my age. It turns out we're, we're five years apart from each other. We grew up in the same part of San Jose. Uh, we went to the same high school. We both went to college at Cal Poly. Um, I was a political science major. Five years later, he went to Cal, uh, Cal Poly. He was a political science major. He's back living in, in San Jose, and his family owns ranch land up in those hills where Dunham had been spotted, and he had been following this case himself, and when he was a young kid, uh, he and his father were uh, walking around the property, and they found a bone, a human femur bone, and they decided to just leave the bone there because they they assumed it was probably a Native American, and they just didn't want to disturb, you know, the remnants. So, so they just left it where it was. And it was years later when he became an adult, he learned about the McGlincy case and, and doing some research of his own. And he began to wonder, you know, maybe that was Dunham's bone. And uh, he was not able to recover that femur bone. But I, I often wonder what would have happened if that bone had been recovered could we have done some DNA testing and detected a match? And uh, that might have conclusively determined once and for all that that was done. But it didn't come to be. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. But one thing is for sure is that at least in the immediate aftermath, you know, he got away. It's not a pleasant truth, but it is the truth. And what struck me is I was reading your account of his great escape uh, was that for however long the rest of his life would be, the knowledge of what he had done would stay with him. And I imagine the torment at the consequences and what he had brought upon himself. And Tobin, that is the kind of torment from which there is no great escape. I agree. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a pleasure to have you. It's an incredible tale and hard to believe that it's still unsolved, but you have captured the mysteries of that unknowing so beautifully. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you again for giving me the opportunity to share the story and elaborate. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. So thank you very much.
Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Tobin Gilman, author of The McGlincy Killings in Campbell, California, an 1896 unsolved mystery, published by the History Press. Join us next time for another great escape in American true crime history. We'll see you then. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.